You may remember from, I think, maybe it's still on, I have no idea, but in the early 2000s on MTV, there was a show called Total Request Live, TRL. It's a real big deal. Um, I never watched it because I thought that the music that they played was at, at best unwholesome and at worst just talentless drivel. Um, but it was a real important thing because all the people in the United States of America would get together and they would, or all the kids, I guess, and decide what the most important thing, most important song would be and then they would request it. And I think it was Carson Daly, maybe one of those guys, uh, was the, the one who would tell us what the most important and best songs were. Well, this summer, um, now that we finished the Gospel of Luke, we're doing Total Request Live here at Coast Bible Church. Yeah. Um, if you have uh, something that you are you know, desperate to hear, I guess my opinion about, or Neil's, uh, from the pulpit, now's your chance. Uh, this week we're, we're starting it. Uh, we've had a request to talk about um, the Greek word pistuo, which I know a lot of you are spending a lot of time thinking about on a day-to-day basis. Uh, nevertheless, it, it, it is important to a number of people, and it is important uh, to our understanding of specifically the New Testament, but the scriptures as a whole. So uh, I've been tasked... With, uh, with talking a little bit about that. But, 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 if you have something that's, that's, that's important to you, something uh, that you would like to hear about, now's your, t- now's your chance, email uh, me or Neil, or uh, talk to me after the sermon, and we'll try our best to hit all of the various topics um, that are of, of meaning, of importance uh, to the people in the church. Um, if you're wondering what the word, Greek word pistuo is, it's the verb uh, in Greek that gets translated believe. Sometimes it gets translated have faith. Sometimes it, has, it gets translated trust, have confidence. But it's really, it's the word of, it's the word of faith in the New Testament and in the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And there's a lot of questions about what this word means, how we should understand it. And because, because, because we all know John 3.16, you know, whoever believes in him has everlasting life. There's a big question about our eternal state, our, our ability, or well, not our ability, but our, our future with God that somehow hinges or somehow is impinged by belief. And so this is not, this is not just a throwaway word. This is right at the core of, of Christian faith as we think about what it means uh, to believe in Jesus and then ultimately to receive eternal life in his name. And so to begin, I would like you to think about when you, you know, go back and assuming that, that you have, when did you come to faith in Christ? What happened in your life where you would say you believed, right? Uh, I can tell you my story. Normally I tell stories about my dad, um, but these are usually really sad and he gets really embarrassed because I'm telling all the terrible things he's done. So today I want to tell something my parents did right, so I have to talk about my mom. Um, she told me a story. I remember this. Uh, I was, well, yeah, so I, I was, it, was mom, it was mom and Tom time. And she told me a story uh, about Jesus and about God. And she said, she said, Tom, Jesus died for your sins. You've been naughty. And we could both agree on that. Uh, that happened pretty frequently in my house. I was a little rascal. And so I could agree. I could say, yep, I have been naughty. A number of times in my life I've been pretty naughty. And she says, you know something, Tom? God is a good God. He's a, he's a loving and, and good God, but he's a holy God. He's not, he's, not just, he's not just everything's cool with God. No, God has some standards. And when you're naughty, when you sin, when you, when you stray off the path, God 
gets upset. That is not okay with God. And God wants you to live with him forever. God wants you to be in his presence forever. But, 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 this thing inside of you, this sin, is putting a barrier between you. And if you want to be able to be with God forever, if you want to have eternal life with him in heaven, you must believe in his son. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. All this naughty stuff you've done, that he rose again. And that he gives you eternal life. We uh, then digressed into a uh, really technical discussion of justification and sanctification in Romans. Um, and once my mother was really certain that I fully understood, uh, no, that's, I'm just kidding. I was four years old when this happened. I was four. And I said, yes, mommy, I believe. I want Jesus to be in my heart. I want to be forgiven. And so she led me in what's called the sinner's prayer. Interestingly enough, the sinner's prayer and the use of John 3.16 in evangelism has not been universal throughout the Christian church's history. Although one thing has, one thing has, uh, the sinner's prayer and John 3.16 really are a response to the Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries. But one thing has, and that is the basic arc of what I just told you. There's a story, someone you trust is telling you something that you believe because you trust that person or you've seen what has happened in the past and you believe that story and then you trust that there's a that something's going to happen in the future. In fact, in the Old and New Testament, as we see, there's going to be a, a, a movement where a person or a people see that God have, has done something and based on that, based on God's gracious initiative and action, this person or people will believe that God is faithful to do what he says he will do. And that is the core. The core, it's the first meaning of the Greek word pistuo. Um, I, I, I haven't, we're going to jump around a little bit, but uh, you'll notice that in every one of the, the texts that we bring out today, there's going to be something about believing and trusting. And so uh, just follow on, the, on the, um, the screen behind me. And we'll try to, uh, to get a sense, get a feel for, um, for, for faith, for pistuo. This is from Genesis 15, probably the paradigm example of faith in the Bible, Old and New Testament. Uh, Paul is going to refer back to it later in our message. But it begins, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, who we know as Abraham, in a vision saying, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Then Abram said, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my ho- no one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he, Abram, believed in Yahweh God. And Yahweh God accounted it to him as righteousness. Just before this, I mean, I don't know if you think about Abraham Abraham or Abram as as a warrior prince, 
But he's kind of presented that way in Genesis. So just before this text, Abram uh, finds out that his nephew has been kidnapped, a bunch of women have been kidnapped from his household, and a whole bunch of stuff has been stolen by a group of warlords. And so Abram says, that's not going to stand. So he brings up, uh, I think it's like 300 of his, his buddies, and his, people that are committed to him, and they just whip out swords, and they go and they do like a special ops sort of night attack on this larger enemy, and they come into two groups, and they overwhelm them, they uh, get uh, his nephew Lot back, they get the the women back, they get all the loot, they even to maybe take a little plunder for themselves, and then they go back to celebrate their victory. And at this time, at this moment, a local chief, a local chief and a local priest comes named Mel- Melchizedek, and he comes and he blesses Abraham. And he says, Abraham, you are blessed, Abram. Abram, you are blessed. And then he says something else. He says, he says, this victory that you've just won, this is the blessing of the Most High God on you. God did this for you. You didn't know it. You didn't ask for it. You just did what any normal person would do. You saw that your family was in danger, and so you went to defend them. And on all the whole time, behind the scenes, God, Yahweh God, the Most High God, the Creator God, is behind you, was behind you. And so at the beginning of our text, Abram's thinking, he's thinking, wow, wow. God did all this for me without even me asking. I had this improbable victory against a larger foe, three warlords from the area. Maybe this God, maybe Most High Yahweh God really is looking out for me. And then, and then, right after that, he has a vision and God speaks to him. God spells things out. God tells Abram to look at the past. What has God done for you? Consider the present. I'm speaking to you now. And subsequently, trust, believe, pistuo. That the Most High God will keep his word. Abraham doesn't do anything. He hasn't had anything to do. He simply responds in trust, in belief. And that's how faith starts. My mom's sitting there and she's like, Tom, here's a story. And I trust my mother. I know that she's not out to hurt me. And so I believe her and I hear the things that she says about God and I say, yes, I believe those things too. It begins not of anything that I've done, not, but, but my knowledge of how the past has worked and who I can trust. And so there's this faithful testimony that comes to me. And I simply respond with, yes, I believe that. There's nothing to it. I, I believe that God will protect me. When I die, he's going to give me eternal life. He's going to be with me. I believe that Jesus paid for my sins. I simply believe those things, and there's nothing that I've done of myself. But that, but that, friends, is not the end. That's the beginning of faith. That's the beginning of pistuo. Everything that's mine is mine, and everything that's yours is mine too. I tell this to my daughter. She doesn't understand it yet because she doesn't know how to put words together in sentences very well. But I know this because I grew up hearing it. Now we can talk about my dad. Everything that's mine is mine. Everything that's yours is mine too. Until you're 18, you live by our rules in our house. During the summer, when you're living with us, you take out that earring and cut your hair. And no, you are not allowed to work at that trashy business. True fact, uh, for those of you who remember back in 2000, it was cool at the time to have a cartilage piercing. These are real painful, um, and I was in college and exploring my freedom, and so uh, I, I got one of these things, and it takes a long time to, to heal. In fact, uh, if you don't rotate it, it kind of gets infected, but it was worth it because it was cool. Well, I came home, and I found out that it wasn't cool with somebody, namely my dad. <laughs> and I, 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 look, by no fault of my own, there's nothing I did to be born to my parents. Uh, that was just a gracious gift. No, I'm serious. It was. It was a gracious gift. I, I, I cannot complain. Um, 
you know, now that there's some distance between it and I have you know, children of my own and a, and a wife of my own, I can really see how blessed I was. Like, this really was an incredible gift to be born into this family and not some of the other ones that I've known over the years. And yet, what I found out was that this gracious gift came to me, and, you know, that's what it was, but it came, once I was in it, once I was in it, I found out that there was mutual obligation, right? It wasn't as though um, my parents were just cooled, whatever. Um, There was actually an expectation. There's an expectation that I don't have a cartilage piercing when I show up at church when I come back from college. It was an expectation that my hair be cut, you know, above the shoulders. That's another thing. Guys with long hair, it used to be really cool. Um, I don't know what happened there, but it's, uh, it's clean cut all the way, except for the face nowadays. There was an expectation that there were their rules, and I would live by those rules. No earrings, no long hair. I had to wash the car every weekend. Um, as an act of rebellion, I refuse to wash vehicles now. Um, so our cars are disgusting, and that's kind of like my... All those times I had to wash that car for you. You can understand, though, that there's this relationship. I didn't ask for it. It happens. And then I found myself in it. And once I was in it, there were expectations placed on me. Relationship is a two-way street. And it requires, it requires to be healthy and to be good, a second type of faith that gets translated as pistuo. Or pistuo is the Greek uh, used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and we'll see in the New Testament. Uh, the Hebrew word for uh, uh, believing in or, or trusting is uh, almost always amin. Um, and with one exception, and this is crazy because it happens some like 900 times in the Old Testament. So with only one exception, the translators of, the Greek translators of the Old Testament who took the Old Testament Hebrew and put it into Greek in Alexandria, Egypt, they translated this word amin in Hebrew with the word pistuo. It never, it's, I mean, one time, one time in Jeremiah, it's something else, but it's almost always, almost always pistuo. And we know that this is significant because when, uh, when the, the translators are looking for a, a meaning of something like ongoing uh, commitment or um, never give up kind of remaining faithful, they use a different Greek word in the, in the Greek translation. That word is patho. So there's these two words that get used. And when, when they're only talking about commitment, you know, effort, they're talking about patho, that's the word they use. And when they're only talking about trust, like we saw in Genesis 15.6 of Abraham, they use the word pistuo. That doesn't mean, however, that the word pistuo doesn't carry some associations of commitment or faithfulness. And it really does. We can see it in a number of places. And so when we talk about this word pistuo, and not patho over there, but pistuo, we come up with really two kinds of faith. In the first, which we just saw with Abraham, faith involves someone believing that God will do what God says God will do. A person is expected to trust in response to who God is and what God has done for them. This is the faith of affirmation. It's the idea we believe, we assent. Yes, God, you're going to keep your promises. It doesn't matter that we're like 100 years old. We're still going to have a kid because you say so, God. And we're gonna, we believe it because we've seen what you've done in the past. We know what you're like. And now we're going to trust you that since you've done those things, you're, you're faithful, you can do this too. And that's the faith that I had. When my mom explained to me that Jesus died for my sins. 
We can see this uh, in another place. It's, it's, it's great. It's, uh, it's an exodus. And, uh, and, and the people have just been delivered from Egypt. I mean, crazy stuff. There's plagues, and then there's a Red Sea, and all this stuff has happened. And then we get this in Exodus 14.31. It says, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. God's powerful action initiates a response of trust. People now affirm that God and Moses will perform everything that they say. There's a second type of of faith that I've alluded to in the Old Testament. There is that simple response of trust to God's activity, but then there's also this, a second type of faith translated by pistuo in the Greek Septuagint, in which a person or people are expected to act in response to who God is and what God has done for them. If you've heard the word covenant, this is the language of a covenantal relationship. It presupposes that God and the people are in this relationship. He's Yahweh God. They're his people. We get different metaphors for this in the scriptures. Sometimes Israel is is his son or even his daughter. Sometimes Israel is his wife. But there's a deep, familial, tight relationship between Yahweh God and these people. And so God expects them, because they're in this relationship that's been initiated, to do the right stuff, to be faithful to him. Listen to this. This is from Deuteronomy 9.23. And then, when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, telling you, go up and take possession of the land I'm giving you, you disobeyed Yahweh God's commandment. You didn't trust him. That's Pistuo. You didn't obey his voice. Because there's this relationship, and because Israel has seen the past, when God says something to them, it's as though your dad says, Tom, get that earring out of your ear. You're expected to act in a certain way because of the relationship I've established. Tom, I, you know, your mother and I, we we are the reason you're here. Not you. You had nothing to do with it. And yet, because we're in this relationship, Israel is expected to act in accordance with her trust. Because she knows God, she's expected to obey him. And so we have these two... They're very, very close. They both kind of mean trust. They, they both mean believe. But on the one hand, there's a, a belief that is all God. God's done it, and, and God says he's going to do something else, and we just believe it. We say, okay, God, you're big enough to do that. God, I know that I can't have kids, but you delivered, us, uh, you delivered my nephew. You gave us victory in battle. You're a big God, and so I'm just going to say, all right, you can do it. I just trust you. And then there's a second time where it's almost as if that moment initiates a relationship, a covenantal relationship between you know, father and son or husband and wife, where now we're in this relationship, and because God has been faithful, it's sort of expected that we kind of are faithful back. And so it's still sort of trust, but it's a trust that issues in action and in obedience. I'm going to uh, suggest to you that that exact same pattern is found all throughout the New Testament. The New Testament's written in Greek, and uh, we're going to hear uh, the word pistuo. But interestingly, in the, in the New Testament, we have an, an instance, and I get really excited about this, but I also get excited about the Oxford comma. Do you guys know the Oxford comma? It's really, really important stuff. If you have a sentence where it says, Tom went to the grocery store, uh, the bowling alley, and had fun, the Oxford comma says you have to have a comma after the first thing, the grocery store, and the second thing, bowling, so that you can distinguish between bowling and had fun. 
This is super important, guys. If you don't, if you don't assent to it, if you don't, no one, no one, okay, Josh feels me. Josh gets excited about the Oxford comma. I spend, I spend, I, when I'm teaching classes, man, I hammer this into the students. Because think about it, think about it. If you read it the other way, Tom went to the grocery store, comma, bowling and had fun. It could be that bowling was fun. Or it could be Tom went bowling and did, did something else to have fun. The importance of the Oxford comma, it's, it's, don't worry about it. Uh, it's something that I care about. So I get excited about grammar. Well, it just so happens that uh, in the New Testament, um, the word pistuo is for the first time in Greek literature uh, attached to a certain preposition, ace. Uh, ace usually gets translated in or into. And so here we go. I'm going to ask you two questions. You tell me if you feel the difference. Do you believe Donald Trump? Do you believe him? Uh, he's been in the news lately. Um, apparently, he's like a millionaire or a billionaire, and uh, uh, he has a t- TV show where he tells people that they're fired. Um, really, a, kind of a loudmouth dude. But apparently, now he's running for president. Um, fortunately, we know that um, actors and celebrities never become president, so we don't have to worry about it. Oh, oh wait. So there's a question. There's a question that you're asking yourselves when you hear Donald Trump. He says things like, uh, I don't know. I think he said something about immigration. And so if I ask you, do you believe Donald Trump? What I'm asking you is, is what Trump says about immigration true? Right? Let me ask you a second question. Do you believe in Donald Trump? A lot of people in 2008 believed in Barack Obama. They really did think that he was going to come and... Fix America. But you see that you hear the difference. The first question asks, well, Trump says a lot of stuff. Do you think it's true? The second question asks, is Trump the kind of person who's going to lead America in the right direction? Right? An affirmation of the first might be, well, yeah, I think he's probably right on immigration, but he seems kind of crazy. I don't know. I mean... Or, no, he's totally wrong about all the stuff that he says in immigration. He's crazy, and I just don't know what to make of the guy. The second, the second, the second is different. It's qualitatively different. Well, there's this crazy Greek construction, pistuo ace, that's unique uh, to the New Testament. It's preferred uh, by John when he's writing his, John, uh, his gospel. Never used in classical Greek, not used in Septuagint Greek, not used in intertestamental. It's the time between uh, Malachi and Matthew Greek. It's never used. And then suddenly, bam, it shows up in the Gospel of John and a few other places in the New Testament. And it's, it, it, it began because um, there's a, another phrase that's got, do you believe that? And then da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And so Jesus, and then eventually the evangelists, they, they stopped saying, do you believe that? Da-da-da-da. And started saying, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in this man? That he is the son of God. That he is the giver of life. That he raised from the dead. That he can forgive your sins. All this stuff is packed into this little tiny pithy phrase. Do you believe in Jesus? And when we hear that question, we're called to make an affirmation. We're called to assent. Yes, he forgives sins. Yes, he gives life. Yes, he guarantees my resurrection. Or no, I don't buy it. 
The claim of the gospel is that God initiated this action to save us, to give us forgiveness. That God has initiated this action to pour into our hearts eternal life. And all we're asked is to be confronted with it and to respond, to affirm, yes, I believe in Jesus, the Christ, the living Son of God. Or no, that's a little too crazy for me. Listen to this. Uh, this is just one of many examples in, in the Gospel of John. Uh, this is John 2.11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Je- uh, Jesus' first miracle in John is he goes to a wedding and he turns water into wine. And this sign manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. They saw this thing that he did and they said, Yes! The Christ, the Son of God. Yes! He can do this? Absolutely. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. Done. Interestingly, this, uh, this use of, of pistuo ace is in the aorist tense, which uh, for gram- grammar nerds means um, it's happened. It happened once. It was an event that happened. And uh, it, that's it. There was this moment where the disciples saw this thing and they said, ah, I believe. doesn't guarantee that they're not going to maybe change their, line in their mind if Jesus, I don't know, starts cleaning out the temple. Something crazy. But it indicates a moment or moments in time when the disciples respond to God's gracious act with trust in the person of Jesus as Messiah. We're here again in John eleven twenty seven. This is after he's raised Lazarus from the dead. She, Martha, said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. I believe into you as the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She's seen her brother raised. And now she credits that Jesus is the real deal. Interestingly, this is not in the aorist. It's in the perfect, which is another grammar nerd thing. It means something that's probably happened farther back in the past and now continues to have a little more uh, influence now. Meaning probably that Martha knew Jesus and she'd already believed. She already believed in him. Yeah, you're the Christ. And then she sees her her brother come back from the grave? And she's like, now I really believe. Her faith has been strengthened. Uh, This is not, um, John's not the only one who uses this, although he's the the biggest user of Pistuo Ace. In uh, Romans 4, the Apostle Paul uses the same thing, speaking about, would would you guess it? Abraham. This is from uh, Romans 4, 18, 20 to 21. When it was beyond hope, meaning Abraham's too old, Abraham had faith in, pistuo ace, the hope that he would become the father of many nations in keeping with God's promise that he spoke to him. That's how many descendants you'll have. He didn't hesitate with a lack of faith in God's promise, but he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he said. It, it really, he really gets excited about it too. Like he fully convinced. Abraham knows who this God is. He knows what this God is like. And so he believes. And Paul ends... Uh, this 
enthusiastically affirm that God will do what God says. And then Paul says, verse 22, therefore, therefore, because he did that, because he just responded with simple trust, it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, um, so we talked a little bit about me in college. It wasn't just earrings and long hair. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I, you know, I, I never fully departed from the way of the faith, but I definitely took some detours. I can be honest about that. Um, I never went totally nuts, but I did, you know, want to get out there. I did kind of want to um, make some changes to the way I'd done things. But nevertheless, uh, because I was a nerd, um, it was really easy for me to stay away from things that appeared dangerous to me. And I also felt like I'd been told all throughout, uh, you know, growing up here in this church, that sticking with God is the best way to go about life. It's the safest. And because God had been faithful, because I'd grown up in this you know, particular way, I knew that it was right, it was fitting, it was proper that I keep trusting him with continued obedience. We had this relationship, and, and I knew that, or I'd been told, that by sticking with him was the best way to have a good life. And so I felt like, well, I'm going to keep with that. Well, it's a very similar dynamic in the New Testament. The New Testament will have this, the, the, like we said, these first you know, simple trust, God's gracious initiative. And then, because God, through that, becomes our father in truth, because God becomes our father, we then, he then kind of expects, like, well, we have a relationship now, and I want you to keep with me. Look, it's going to be best for you if you stick it out, if you, you stay the course with me. And so just like I'm sitting there trying to decide, well, do I really want to go that far in college? Oh, uh, no, God's been good so far. I'm going to trust him and not, you know, depart too, too much. In, in a similar, similar uh, sense, we get something like that in, in uh, the New Testament. And so, for example, uh, Paul, in Galatians uh, 5, I think, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you became circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You've become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. You're you're going off doing these other things. Stop it. Stop it. Look, haven't I been good? Haven't I been good to you? Come on back. Come on back. For we through the Spirit eagerly await for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You keep faithful. You just keep doing what I told you. Just keep believing me. Just keep trusting me. And then that'll naturally play out um, in in you loving people and you not stressing out about circumcision or uncircumcision. Uh, This was a sign to who was with God and who wasn't in in this time. Um, But but these people in, in Galatia were stressing out about it. And he's like, stop, 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 stop. You've trusted me before. I've been good to you. Keep with that. And then you'll see that you You love. Now, notice the interesting thing about this relationship. It presupposes the relationship we saw in the Old Testament. The Galatians have become estranged from Christ. They, they were together, but now they're breaking up. Um, usually Christ in the church is pictured as, as a husband and a wife, but we can also think of them as departing from God in, in, in the father-child relationship. After entering into that relationship, the Galatians, well, they're expected to think and act in certain ways, to be you know, with God. Their sustained belief should issue in love because this relationship already exists. 
Or uh, just another example of pistuo uh, in the New Testament used in this maybe um, a little more like continue, entrust, commit kind of way. This is uh, from Luke 16.11. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust? True riches. Notice again that here we have a situation where faith is supposed to issue in a, in a kind of activity, namely responsible um, handling of the true riches. But in order for that to happen, a master-servant relationship already has to be in place. Uh, this is from the um, uh, a parable that Jesus tells uh, about um, a, a wicked servant. And the idea is, well, in order to be a wicked servant, first you've got to be a servant. You have to have this relationship before the master can expect you to treat his stuff well. If that relationship doesn't exist, there's no mutual obligation. There's no um, need for you to, to be the kind of person who's trustworthy with riches. And so the idea is, God initiates the relationship, we respond in simple faith, and then we continue in that relationship. In the Old Testament, we think of it as covenantal. In the New Testament, as a father-son or, or, or a husband-wife, a father-child relationship. And that continued trust issues out in obedience, the kind of faithful obedience that um, God expects of people who love him. So I want to suggest then that the Old Testament and New Testament speak with one voice about how it is that God interacts with us, how, how faith works, pistuo faith works, um, it's on the one hand simple trust followed by um, continued obedience. Um, and, and, and so we get this kind of overarching picture and it gives us an idea of what a natural Christian life ought to look like. Um, and for that matter, a, a natural Old Testament Jewish life ought to look like. And it's um, a natural progression. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, All of us are looking with unveiled faces at the glory of the Lord as if we're looking in a mirror. We're being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I, I'm out there and mom tells me about Jesus. I believe. And then the rest of my life is supposed to be me almost like looking in a mirror. And what's looking back at me is the image of Christ but I'm kind of superimposed over it, right? And over time, as I continue to trust, as I continue to trust, I notice that my features begin to get shaved down and, and, and more trans, transformed until, ideally, there's no difference at all. That my continued faith has transformed me, well, God transformed me through this continued faith, into the image of Christ I see in this mirror that's what Christian life is supposed to be like, friends. And thank goodness it always is. Oh, wait. Just one more note on that. This is the tra uh, natural progression of Christian faith. Simple trust that begins a relationship, which is followed by sustained faithfulness that leads to a glorious transformation into the image of Christ. Well, college, uh, I was little... I, for the most part, I stuck with it. Japan, it's a little tougher there, I'll be honest with you. Um, I never fully departed from the faith. I never fully departed from uh, the way of Jesus Christ, but I definitely uh, was probably not the greatest uh, Christian over there. Now, it's not entirely my fault. The country is 99% atheist. Well, at least 99% not Christian. Um, and... Uh, it was challenging. It was not easy. It was tough. I, I admit that. Um, and so if you'd met me, and maybe some of you have, in about 2004, in the middle of my time in Japan, you'd think, 
you know, that image of you looking in the mirror is starting to get like a little bit, you know, stretched and scratched up and you're not really looking like Jesus. You could do a lot better. That's true. And and moreover, I think everyone here can think of somebody that they've met, um, and in my case, people that I've loved very dearly and continue to love very dearly, who are called, you know, black sheep, right? They're people who, they had that moment where they had this initial sense of like, God, I trust you, I believe, Jesus, save me. And then over time, um, things happened, things got in the way, and, and now if you sat down with them and you talked to them about Jesus, it's, some of them can't stand Jesus, some of them think Jesus is a good guy, but nothing else. One thing I've noticed um, is that all philosophers who are atheists are all ex-Christians. Uh, they get real angry. Um, I've noticed this in my life, and uh, it's, it's true. And, and I've noticed that every time I meet a really hardcore atheist, you scratch them a little bit, and you find that underneath is a jilted believer, somebody who had that initial moment of faith and trust, and then over time it just kind of petered out. Well, put yourself in my shoes. So I'm with a friend that I love very dearly. And, you know, one of my oldest, deepest friendships. And a a person who, who at this time, has departed from the faith. A person who uh, had um, a a vibrant and and deep and powerfully emotional, committed faith, like I, maybe on my best days, have had. But but evinced this for a long period of time. And then uh, things happened in this person's life. And uh, now this person, uh, from, from our perspective, is far off. And so I'm a pastor, and now uh, people can come to me and say, well, tell us about this person. Is this person, has this person believed? Is this person saved? Is this per- I mean, what, what, what do you say to that? Because the natural progression is obvious. The natural progression, you look in the mirror, you're supposed to be transformed over time in the image of Christ, and it doesn't look like it's happening here. In fact, it looks like the opposite's happening. So what do you do, Tom? What are you going to say? This is interesting. James 1. James uh, takes up this notion of the mirror. He says in James 1.22, You must be doers of the word and not only hearers who mislead themselves. Those who hear but don't do the word are like those who look at their faces in a mirror. They look at themselves. They see what they're like. They know who they're true. And then they walk away. And they forget what they were like. Isn't it interesting, though, that if you think about this metaphor, when they look in the mirror, they know who they really are. It's not as though the person staring back at them is some... It's the image of Christ. The relationship is there. But they look at it, and they walk away. These people have forgotten who they are. They're children of God. They, they, the image of Christ is staring right back at them. But they walk away and they can't remember what their faces look like. So Tom, Pastor Tom, what do you say? What do you say about the person who seemed like they were, you know, they believed and now they're far off? What, did they never really believe in the first, first place? Or maybe uh, God's given up on them and 
they're done. Well, to them I say this. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. This is a faithful, that's a pistis, uh, the noun form of pistuo, saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign. If we deny him, he'll deny us. But listen, if we're apistis, if we're faithless, trustless, he remains faithful, trustful, committed full. Because he, God, does not deny himself. If you don't believe that God can hold on, then you need to think about Israel. You will never find a more faithless, stubborn, recalcitrant, rebellious, and faithless in both the sense of God, you're not there, and God, I'm not committed to you, people than Israel. And yet, they are a people still. God has not given up. He's not let them go. They've been through terrible things. They've been through difficult, difficult things. And yet, God hasn't given up on them. God doesn't give up on his people. God doesn't say, oh, your faith's not good enough. Your faith didn't last. So, be done with you. I'm finished. Walk away. Actually, God does say that sometimes in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is, he goes back, and he comes back anyway. God doesn't say, oh, 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 it, it, you didn't quite make it. You didn't quite, quite get there, and now you're cast off, Israel. I'm done with you. I'm sick of you. He does say, I'm sick of you, but he says, but I'm going to come back anyway. In Romans 9 to 11, Paul says, look, you think Israel's done? You're crazy. God's not like that. When God chooses people, when he comes into relationship, when he covenants with people, he doesn't quit. When God becomes your father, you can run so far away, but you can't stop him from being your father. You've got his blood, his DNA. He owns you. He made you. And there is nothing that you can do that can get rid of that. You must never think that God lets go because God doesn't let go. That's what makes him God. We're the kinds of people who let go. That's what makes us people. That's what makes us people who need God. That that's not God. God says, I've got you to the end of days and there's nothing you can do to get away from me. No one will snatch you out of my hand, says the Lord God. If God does not let go of Israel, even after all that's happened, then maybe, Pastor Tom, God will not disown his black sheep either. Even though they are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your commitment. God, I confess that I've not always been committed to you. I confess that many times in my life I look and have looked like I don't believe you at all. But in the midst of that, God, I trust that you've been faithful, that you don't quit, that you haven't given up on me. God, I trust that you haven't quit on those who seem so far off. And I trust that you're not giving up on them either. 
I pray, God, that we will have the kind of faith that begins a simple trust and then continues into obedience. It's natural and grows, and, and we become just like the image of Christ we see in the mirror. But God, when things don't go right, we ask for your grace anyway, and that somehow you'll drag us back, kicking and screaming, until we become who you've designed us to be. We ask these things in confidence, God, because of who your son is, what he has done, and that no sin can be imputed to us because we have simply believed. In his name we pray, amen.